and welcome to Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest this week is Paul Robb. Paul is one of the founding members of the groundbreaking band Information Society. We all remember them back from the 80s and early 90s who had a big hits such as What's On Your Mind, Pure Energy, Running, Walking Away. Well, their latest album, Oddfellows, comes out first week of August and it's a groundbreaking album. It's going to be recorded in THX Spatial Audio. We talk about how that came about. We also talk about the good old days, what he did when the band broke up, when they got back together. And we also find out which movie that the band could have had the lead song off the soundtrack. Paul, very nice guy, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with him. So, Paul, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Uh, happy to be here. Yeah. So your latest album, uh, I should say the band's latest album, Oddfellows, comes out in August. And it's pretty groundbreaking uh, with uh, being released on THX uh, Spatial Audio. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because you know, most people know THX from going to the movie theater and seeing the big you know, animation with the big letters, you know, getting all excited about that. Uh, just talk a little bit about how you guys decided on doing well, uh, uh, <clears throat> a friend of the band is um, the uh, COO at THX, and um, they, they've been, you know, they're more of a technology company now than, um, you know, than a cinema, uh, you know, testing company yeah. or calibration company like they used to be. And um, so they have been looking into, uh, into entering this, this sphere for, for a while. Um, they've got a lot of, you know, technology involving headphones and headphone amps and, and um, you know, the reproduction of audio in general, both from computers and from phones and, right. you know, the new generation of, of the way people listen. Uh, and they just thought, um, you know, that, that we would be, I mean, obviously timing was a good, um, you know, was a good part of it, but they thought we would be kind of a, a good band to give a test run to this technology. You know, we've always been known as being willing to experiment, technologically speaking, with the with the media, uh, and uh, we thought it was a great idea, uh, and we uh, hit up our friend Casson Crooker, formerly of the band Freeze Pop, okay. uh, who uh, who's up in Seattle to um, re, you know redo our mixes. Uh, you know we had already had uh, mastered stereo mixes done, uh, and he tore them apart and re-rendered them and remixed them for spatial audio. Uh, and um, it would, you know, turned out to be a, a, a real, um, you know, rewarding uh, experience for us because it was, you know, it's nice to learn things uh, that are new. Uh, right. Also, it's just a different listening experience. You know, personally, I don't listen to music that much on headphones. You know, when I use headphones, it's usually podcasts or, or just uh, noise canceling headphones when I'm flying. Uh, but I do remember sort of when, when headphones, you know, like the original headphone revolution in the, I guess it would have been the 80s, the mid 80s or the early 80s. Uh, it was kind of a revelation for everybody to, to realize how good music could sound right. when the speakers were right there next to your head, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and this is a kind of a refresh of that experience for me anyway. It's kind of like it with these spatial... Uh, audio mixes, it really is, kind of opens up the sound stage and it gives the, the music a whole new uh, room, if you will, um, 
to be experienced in. You know, they're not they're not surround in the in the traditional sense of five channels plus a sub bass channel like people used to have in there or st right. still start to pose in some cases in their you know home theaters or whatever. It's sort of a quasi surround um, experience because it is only two channels, but it's encoded in such a way that it makes you feel like it's kind of surroundy. Right. Like I like you mentioned, like you know, wearing headphones. I've been I've been working from home for almost a year and a half now and. I would wear headphones while commuting, you know, on the train, going to work here and there. Now it's just, if I have to edit a show, I'll, I'll put them on, but listening to music, it's just, you stream it on your phone. The quality isn't obviously as great. So I'm looking forward to experiencing this. I have a question from one of, one of your biggest fans, a good friend of mine, Chad, who wants to know um, what are the basic equipment and like conditions needed to like fully experience the album in THX? Are there any specific like headphones or anything like that? No, no, not at all. It does not require, I mean, and, that, and that's, I think, one of the great things about this technology. It's, it's specifically a, a way of encoding uh, the material, and it doesn't need to be, you know, decoded by anything in particular. Right. Obviously, the better your headphones are, the more, uh, you know, you'll get out of the experience. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I feel like I haven't tested this myself because I have some pretty decent headphones uh, in the studio. Um, but I feel like even if you're just using earbuds, It'll probably be, you yeah. know, because they seal your ear canal. So it's a, it's a completely different type of, of listening than when you're listening in open air. But it doesn't require any, um, any uh, special equipment to experience. And as a matter of fact, when, you know, for people who buy the, um, you know, the uh, album online, mm -hmm. you'll be able to go and get the um, link to the, to the spatial mixes for free. Oh, great. So okay. it's not... It's not like we're using this as a, as a profit center. Right, of course. You know, it's just yeah. a, a fun thing. Right. And a couple, you have a few of the songs have been like out for a couple of years now, like, I think, you know, Biddington and um, Nothing Prevails, I think two of them. Mm -hmm. uh, so like, and I know people, do, like bands and artists just release songs now, you know, maybe one or two or even an EP because the technology there, they can just put, you know, post it online. So wh why the album? Well, it's funny because I, I do, I agree with you, you know, we've had this internal debate in the band for 10 years now about, you know, well, oh, we're kind of back in a pre-album environment, you know, right. like when, when, pe when people were listening to 78s, they could only fit one song per side. And, and yeah. so that was a singles-based environment. Uh, and now we're back in a singles-based environment because people, even if you do release an album, people are probably going to, uh, for the most part, just by pick and choose what songs they want to yeah. buy. And so we kind of decided to uh, have the best of both worlds. And we released those initial four singles kind of uh, pretty much as we finished them. And we just felt like, why not um, release them? We know that the, we know the way people listen to music these days. However, because we're all old people now, um, <laughs> Uh, there's a significant part of our fan base that does still like albums. And, and I am, I include myself in that. Uh, yeah, category. I like to listen to an album. I want to know what the artists, you know, overall vision was um, f during this period of time. And even down to, and including things like what order did the artist want to put the songs in and, yeah. you know, if there's any special doodads between the songs or things right. like that. Um, so that's why, you know, that's behind our decision to assemble these uh, songs onto an album, quote unquote. But as everyone knows, you know, even if you uh, purchase 
songs digitally as opposed to just Spotify or something, you know, you can still pick apart an album 99 times out of 100 and just buy the, the tracks you want to buy. Yeah. But, you know, for, for purists, uh, and I also, I'm, I'm, I'm like this too, uh, we're also going to do, uh, you know, a CD release and a vinyl mm -hmm. release. Uh, just because it's nice to have these things. And, and for me, honestly, I still have a big wall of CDs and a fair amount of vinyl in my uh, yeah. home. And one of the things I find out that's interesting about CDs is I'm more likely to, to uh, find and re-listen to sort of obscure or unexpected music just because it's there, right? physically there. Whereas in, when I use Spotify um, or, or you know any of these other ways of listening to music, even YouTube, for God's sake, <laughs> you tend to kind of get drawn gravitationally drawn back into your you know eight or ten different uh, well gravitational wells, and you listen to the right. same thing over and over because you can't necessarily think of something uh, that's unexpected when you sit down and say, "Well, I want I want music at this moment in time." So. You know, we're going to, we want to please everybody. You know, we're not selling a million copies of anything anymore. So it's very easy for us to, to customize this experience to anybody's, uh, you know, preferences. Right. Is it like, I mean, obviously now, you know, different from 30 years ago, you don't have to worry about a record company breathing down your neck and like, you know, you can do how, how you want it and like space it out. Is it more like satisfying that way? I mean, even though you're not expecting to, you know, make a lot of money off this or yeah. sell a lot, is it just gratifying this way to release yeah, it? I'd say it's not necessarily more lifestyle gratifying because I, yeah. I would certainly, you know, uh, all other things being equal, I didn't mind making of a huge amount of money. Yeah. And, and, right, you know, yeah. Uh, it's all, the, all those things. Um, but from a musical standpoint or dare I say an artistic standpoint, it is more satisfying because... Yeah, we don't have any kind of release pressures. We don't have anyone saying, uh, you know, you should sound like X because that's what's popular right now. And you really need a, uh, you know, a hit single because right. otherwise, you know, how are you going to justify your advance for the next record yeah. and things like that? We have a, actually, in the, we have a long, long running joke uh, in the band because right around, like after we released our second album, Hack, Right. You know, music was kind of splintering in a, in a big way. And, um, you know, alternative was suddenly there, which turned out to be a ridiculous misnomer, in my opinion. But, <laughs> right. uh, uh, you know, and uh, what what had been our sort of stomping grounds, musically speaking, was starting to splinter and go in a bunch of different directions. And there was a band called Utah Saints that had a big yeah. hit right when we were making our third record and our like four or five times our manager who wasn't really keeping up with musical trends. Right. But, but he would like, things would kind of poke into his consciousness. And he's told us several times, you guys need to make a couple of songs that are more Utah saints ish. And so <laughs> Utah saints ish is our, you know, term for like, yeah. you know, like someone arguing with us to try to sound different than we want to sound <laughs> to, to make, please the marketplace. Right. Uh, and so, we don't have to be Utah Saintsish anymore. Yeah, uh, and like you said, we can we can wait as long as we want to have a satisfying collection of songs. Right. You know, it's been uh, what I think our last. You know, we released a cover album in 2017 or something like that. But our last original uh, full album was I think 2014. So it's yeah. seven years now. Right. Um, but we don't care. Yeah. Um, 
you know, it's like when you go to a concert and the band plays their new songs, like people just mostly sit through it so they can hear the classics that they came for. Um, so we know that, you know, there's not like there's this huge uh, yawning chasm of, of desire out there in the marketplace for our new music, but there's people who are, you know, who will pick it up and take a yeah. listen. Um, so we can wait until we're satisfied with it, which is, you know, why it took seven years this time. Right. Like I, I'm like a fan of like, you know, an artist or a band and I like when they release new music, you know, I, I know people go to concerts, you know, they hear a new song, Oh, bathroom break, let me get a drink or something like yeah. that. But like, it's, it's great to hear new music. Cause that's what you want to hear. Like, you know, your artists, you don't be relevant and, yeah. you know, still be creative and, and out there. So, I mean, I appreciate that, you know, you guys are still out there and, you know, releasing new music and even covers, you know, albums, which, which are great too. So yeah. I know you just like to have, you know, covers on at least, you know, a song on each album. So, which, which is always fun, but yeah. like George, George Lucas always complained about Star Wars that he never had the technology to fully, you know, make his vision. That's why he always bastardized it every, every, you know, couple of years. Yeah. Did you like guys have to wait? For the technology to catch up with your music in, in some regards if you had asked me that question 20 years ago i would have said yes but now right. that i'm older and wiser and have had more time to think about it i actually think the answer is no okay and i even think george lucas is uh is a bit full of it when he says that mm -hmm. because if you look at the original star wars movie the first one it is such a movie of the 70s right. everything about it is the 70s mm -hmm. yep and what made it good had nothing to do with technology mm -hmm. uh, other than the technology that was there at the time. Mm -hmm. Similarly, I, I have really come to believe that trends in popular music and in the styles of popular music are utterly dependent and mostly caused by tech changes in technology. If you listen to, you know, I mean, hip hop couldn't have happened without, without DJ mixers. Right. And, when you know recorded hip hop couldn't have happened the way it did without samplers our music couldn't have happened without samplers it wouldn't have sounded anything like that um and you know rock and roll couldn't have happened without amplifiers and without fuzz tones and right. and and pa systems that could be loud enough to to play for a hundred thousand people yeah. etc cetera, etc cetera. all of these things are completely dependent on technological uh, advances, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's getting better or that it's allowing us to, you know, sort of express our vision any more clearly. It really doesn't. It just changes your vision. You know, I mean, I listen to, and it's to a certain extent, it's also cyclical. The, I, I'm always uh, find it a bit hilarious when I listen to, you know, modern trap music or even, you know, sort of pop of today, and they use vocal samples as a as a um you know a melodic element in their songs and they 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 pitch it up you know like they, they just play the sample in whatever melody they want to and and you know in the high notes it'll sound cartoonish and the low notes it'll sound yeah. you know, like a sound effect in that sense and that's what we used to do you know in the mid 80s and when um when the technology came around where you could change the pitch of a sample without changing its speed, it was revolutionary. And we thought that was the most awesome thing ever. Right. Now people are trying to do it the op, you know, to make it, to, to ignore the fact that they can do that and make it sound kind of uh, incongruous and funny on purpose. Right. Uh, you know, 
So another example is, is the, the pumping effect that you hear in almost every single techno record in the last 10 years. That was a mistake. That was because all these bedroom DJs were, were mixing their records through the world's worst compressor. <laughs> it was a Behringer 3630 compressor. Right. And it was such poor quality that you, it, it pumped like that whenever you would send a bass signal through it, the whole level of the track would go down for a second. And top flight engineers knew how to correct for that. And if you have, if you had expensive equipment, but that cheap compressor just did it because it was bad. Right. But, but then suddenly it became a desirable effect. And, and everybody did that on purpose then after that, you know, so that's an example of almost like a technical uh, regression right. of the sound of music. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's a very, very long answer to your question. But no, I don't think that that uh, we've had to wait for any sort of improvements in technology to to, uh, you know, realize our vision. I think our vision has always been dependent on the technology that's available. Right. In a, in a certain way, uh, you know, like now that our studios are completely in the box and we have a thousand synthesizer, mm -hmm. uh, you know, plugins yeah. to choose from. It actually makes it a little bit harder because the, that that sort of choice anxiety, you know, when you have too much to choose from, can make it a little harder to to decide what you really want. How much of the album was done like virtually for you guys? I mean, was was a lot of it done during the pandemic? Uh, everything was done virtually except for the vocals. Okay. Um, and and that actually, people have asked, you know, was that a was that due to the pandemic? And, and the answer to that is no, we've been making our records like that for, for 20 years now. Okay. Um, we, you know, because we all live in separate cities and it's just, you know, the days of kind of like everybody sitting around the studio all day, uh, you know, while you're recording or coming up with ideas, just, it, you know, we, we're all too busy. We have lives and families and, um, so I guess I'd say that's one example of where, you know, technology has really assisted us yeah. is that it's just, uh, it, it, it's very copacetic with our, with our working styles, you know, because we are always completely electronic. We were never like a rock band where they right. would get into a rehearsal room and like kind of hash out all their new songs live. Yeah. We never did that anyway. So, <laughs> uh, so this has made us that this may be the one area where, we the technological advancements have allowed us to make records the way we always wanted to right has your songwriting process changed since the 80s no again not really because even when we you know even when we lived in the same house which is what you know we all lived together during the period leading up to our first album we still didn't sit down in the same room and write songs together right. not at all yeah. it was exactly what happens now someone would come up with some tracks hand it to somebody else and say, hey, maybe you should try to put a melody on this or maybe you should try to develop this a little bit for me or why don't you put some lyrics on this and let's see what happens. Sorry about that. That's all right. Um, and that's that's still what we do today. It's exactly right. the same process. Okay. And just take me back to, I guess, the song that started it all with, with running. What was like the inspiration behind that song? Uh, the story of that song is so incredibly convoluted that I could go <laughs> on for an hour. Um, but the, 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 the condensed version is that uh, I, I produced Running 
uh, at, a, at a period of time when the band was actually broken up. Okay. We decided, everybody decided that this was a failed proposition. Uh, Jim Cassidy ran away to Boston to go to art school. Kurt Larson ran away to, to Europe, <laughs> took his student loan money, <laughs> and right. went to Europe with it. Right. Uh, and I was still kind of sadly continuing to, to keep going. And so I, I was working with a variety of other people. And one of the people I was working with was this guy who was in one of a, a rival band uh, to us back in the Minneapolis day, uh, Murat Konar. And he brought this song to me and said, hey, let's try to, let's try to do this one. Um, and it was mostly like what you would think of as running today, although the chorus was completely right. different. Uh, and we hashed that around for about six months and we even released a version of it, which super duper collector fans will still buy off the internet. And I don't know why, because it is so terrible. Right. They released a 12 inch with the old chorus and Marat really just right. couldn't sing it. He couldn't sing it. Yeah. <laughs> so finally both us and the record company realized what a terrible mistake we'd made. And they tried to get as many of them back as we could. But right. Then I rewrote the chorus and then that's what picked up, um, eventually got picked up by Tommy Boy, and which then resulted in us starting to play shows in New York. And then it start, uh, you know, led to us moving to New York and the deal with Warner Brothers and, and everything like that. But it was a long, it was a long road. And then as suddenly, as soon as we got signed, all the, all the rats came back to the sinking ship, you know, that <laughs> was kind of reconstituted. Right. Well, was it like, difficult playing those shows in new york i mean the crowd's expecting like you know a certain you know band and seeing you know basically a couple of white people from you know minnesota <laughs> i mean it may have been difficult for them but it wasn't difficult we loved right. it i mean yeah. it was it was culture it was culture clash 101 for uh, i mean cultural education really because we were as white bread as possible right even for Minnesota, we were nerdy and white bread, you know? Yeah. And so to kind of do these shows in, in Brooklyn and, and the heart of the South Bronx, and eventually we, we started playing in South Florida and, and Jersey and yeah. whatever. Um, we didn't know anything. We didn't know what a Dominican was or, or a Puerto Rican, and they didn't really know what we were either. They thought we were British because <laughs> uh, they weren't really familiar with Minnesota accents either. Right, yeah. Um, but you know the strength of the song carried us through that, and um, it was really eye-opening for us—not just from a cultural life education point of view, but from a musical point of view. I mean, there's nothing like, you know, spending a couple of years in New York City to open your eyes about what you could do with your music. You right. Know? Um, and uh, yeah, so it was—it was both, um, you know, a, a, a cultural. Um, education for us but also I, I couldn't have couldn't have imagined a better uh, a better way to to become introduced to you know yeah. dance music really right you know i'm originally from queens new york so i know a lot of those places well and i've had like some of those artists on so they always you know talk about you know those danceteria and you know all, all those those places so it sounded yeah. you know well, great funny because we i i think that the fact that we lived in a province, essentially, you know, back in Minnesota, we got a weird, weird uh, co combination of musical uh, things that kind of, for whatever reason, were, was able to leak through right. into into Minnesota. So it was, you know, we were we would go to the local club and we'd hear Africa Bombada, and then the next song would be Gary Newman, and then the next yeah. song after that would be, 
you know, whatever the B-52s. And then, and then we'd hear, you know, something from San Francisco, the residents or whatever. And I, I think that was really important for us in terms of just opening our eyes to the eclectic nature of, of what you could do. But it was our New York experience that really cemented sort of, if you will, the bottom end and the beats, which kind of became our trademark in a way, you know, for pop, for, for a pop band anyway. Right. Yeah. I mean, you included, you know, running on, you know, the debut album. Did you have a lot of those songs already written, like as you were performing running in those places? Oh, no, not at all. As a matter of fact, um, we had a bunch of, of pre-running songs. Okay. Uh, and when we first showed up in New York, we thought they wanted a regular show like we would have played at a, at a you know, rock club. And they didn't. They wanted a track show. That's what they were looking for. They wanted a two or three song show. Yeah. Uh, they were very flummoxed when we showed up with all this gear and <laughs> wanted it to be plugged in. And then we played all these songs that no one had ever heard before. Yeah. That didn't go over very well. <laughs> uh, but we, we were, you know, we were quick learners. And right. um so, you know, when running blew up, suddenly there was talk like, well, you guys got to got to start getting an album together. And we had a bunch of bits and bobs, but we didn't really know how to write mm. songs yet. And so that's why it took us, you know, a year and a half or two years to really put together an album. And that was a very painful process. Tommy Boy signed us. They gave us some money and we went into the studio in Minnesota and we kept sending our our songs to them. And finally, <laughs> Uh, Monica Lynch, the president of Tommy Boy, flew out to Minnesota and wanted to have a meeting with us. And right. we were like, oh, this is going to be great. She's going to tell us how brilliant we are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she basically said, you guys are not cutting it. This this uh -oh. this music, I can still remember it. It was so traumatic. I can still remember the words she used. She said, these songs are not competitive. Oh, boy. And, and she said, however, here's the, here's the deal we're going to offer. Uh, you can sign with Warner Brothers. Your budget has now just quintupled okay. from what we were going to give you, and we'll hire you a producer. And that's how we were able to finally whip all these half songs into right. real songs. Right. Um, and I, I went out to New York and worked with Fred Marr for a whole summer. And by the end of that summer, that's when we had our first album finished. Oh, wow. When you have yeah. a little bit of pressure, things start to ramp up a little bit. <laughs> oh, no, it wasn't. You know, if the funny thing is, it wasn't pressure at all. It was the greatest, right. greatest summer of my life. I was so excited. Right. You know, Fred was a classic New York kid. He was so jaded already, even though he was the same age as we were. So right. we were like 23, 24. Mm -hmm. But he had already been, you know, he played in Lou Reed's band and he played mm -hmm. with Material and Scritty Politti. And um, so he would sleep till noon. And I right. just... I couldn't wait, you know, like I was up at eight and I would try to take a walk and then I would go have breakfast and I was still at his door by like 1030 pounding on his door. Right. Saying, well, we have to start. We have yeah. to start. Cause I was so excited. Yeah. I mean, it actually worked out that you guys didn't lose the momentum from running, you know, when it first came out a couple of years waiting for the debut album because debut album did very well. So it's, yeah, well, you, you, you're right. Running was, uh, was, you know, as they used to say in pop radio, running had legs. Yeah. Uh, and it was popular for a long, long time uh, because, you know, uh, uh, as people, some people may or may not know, we finished the album and then we had to wait another year while the lawyers wrangled about the samples that were on the album. 
Yeah. That album was in the can a year before it finally came out. And then when it did come out, Warner Brothers really didn't have any expectations for it at all. And so they didn't press up very many copies. Okay. Uh, and so it went gold in about three weeks. And then it took Warner Brothers about eight more weeks to press up more copies of the album. Wow. <laughs> and so it would have been a platinum record right mm. off the bat. But I can remember going to um, in-store record signings where there was no records to be signed. <laughs> now, that's a frustrating experience. Yeah, I could imagine. Uh, so, I mean, so, yeah, we did. Thank God we had that that you know momentum already from from a couple of years prior otherwise with you know if we were just a brand new band uh with that debut record it probably would have killed us with you know missteps on the on the labels part yeah i had uh amanda on a couple years ago and Mm -hmm. she she talked about obviously her troubles i'll get back in in a sec but you know just how difficult like what's on your mind your energy was to make that song was just so difficult i mean what what was like you know just the issues behind that song you mean legally speaking well just i mean i guess to make it and then the legal issues well you know it was it, it was an example of one of those songs that um had been kicking around in my studio for for a while but like i said we didn't really know how to write lyrics i didn't know that much about song structure i didn't approach right. it in a, in a any kind of organized way i didn't study pop songs or anything like we were just very arrogant and and also we were very artsy when our first couple of years when we were a local band we didn't really have any interest in writing traditional pop songs right it was only after running became a hit that we realized oh we need to write pop songs now three minute pop songs you know verse chorus, you know intro verse chorus verse chorus 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 and we didn't know that we didn't know how to do that so running first existed basically as like a 12 minute instrumental jam like you know like the end yeah. of uh, i mean what's on your mind sorry okay um, much like the end of running was um and it was only after we we kind of got our wake-up call from tommy boy where they said your stuff is terrible mm. that i took it back in you know and, and kind of really started a woodshed style process and like how can i need to yeah. listen to some songs and i need to figure out how people write songs and i need to make my songs sound like that mm. Uh, and that's when I was able to kind of graft a nice chorus onto uh, what's on your mind. And that process took took many months. Right. And then, you know, like I was alluding to, after the whole thing was done, uh, the whole record sat, uh, sat on the shelf for a year while um, people were pulling their hair out about how we were going to deal with the samples because it was it was completely new territory at that point, you know. Uh, companies were realizing that they didn't want this to happen. Um, and as a matter of fact, it was, it was so early that they didn't even realize that this could have been a profit like they later did. There was no profit motive. Uh, they didn't say, oh, we want part of your songwriting right. in exchange for using this sample, or we want you to give yeah. us money in exchange for using this sample. They just said, no, you can't use our intellectual property at all f- mm-hmm. under any circumstances for any reason. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, that was kind of the underpinning of our whole aesthetic as it was with hip hop. Right. Um, and so, it, you know, it took a long time to get that stuff straightened out. 
So it was, you know, it did have a complicated and, and painful birthing process for sure. How'd you guys like decide on those, like, you know, samples? Because I mean, I'm not a big Star Trek fan. Uh, I'd imagine you guys are too, you know, obviously adding those to the song. So, well, well, I mean, ironically, we've, you know, we ended up being kind of known as the Star Trek band, but right. um, it was, uh, it, we were, we weren't so much Star Trek. We weren't Trekkies ever or anything like that. What we were fans of was, late night popular culture as okay. as uh, shown on tv so you know in the there was a summer and it was the summer of 1984 kurt and i were living together everybody else was gone our girlfriends were gone we had terrible jobs i was working in a parking lot right and you know we we did literally did nothing it was just a hot summer but but one of the things that we did do is we stayed up until about three in the morning every single night watching terrible tv reruns right. and that included star trek and it included twilight zone and the outer limits and kung fu yeah. and scooby-doo <laughs> right. and all this stuff and we recorded for whatever reason i don't know why we didn't have samplers we never even heard of such a thing but we recorded all of these TV shows yeah. with a boombox sitting in front of the speaker okay. of the television. Right. And those were the samples when we when we did get our hands on a sampler for the first time. Those are the samples we those are the sounds that we loaded into the sampler and started playing around with. Right. So there was no great aesthetic um you know, or, or artistic uh, origin story. It was just we picked out the ones that sounded the best, right? Um, and and fit with the with the rhythmic structure of the music. And for whatever reason, I mean, we use plenty of other samples besides Star Trek. But on that first album, for whatever reason, there there was a nice. There was just a brilliant crunchiness to those lines of dialogue from Star Trek that that a lot of other uh, source material did not have. And so when I went to, to New York to, to do pre-production on the album, Kurt sent me with a, with a whole box full of cassette tapes. And that's what we started playing around with and loading into our sampler uh, for those songs. Right. Things would have been a lot different if you had like Zoinks, you know, from like Shaggy yeah. or something yeah. like that. You know, it would have been yeah. a, little, a little different. Yeah. Oh, I mean, there's plenty of Scooby-Doo in the, in the end jam part of running, actually. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But um, yeah, no, I mean, and, and we didn't pick pure energy because we, because we had cared at all what the words were. Right. It, was the, it was just the pure sound of the sample that yep. we loved so much. Right. But it became, your, a hook. it became a hook in its own right. Right, yeah. You know? What's your relationship with the song now? Um, I don't, you know, I try not to listen to our old music except when I need to. Right. Um, I can't imagine some of these bands like we've had a long career, but we're not a, we're not anything like a super pop. Like, can you imagine the Rolling Stones playing start me up or something? Oh my God. You know, they yeah. must want to just commit Harry Carey yeah. every single time. Okay. <laughs> um, but you know, that's the great thing about the fact that we don't play live that often. I mean, you know, in, in the last 20 years we've gone out, probably every year or every other year, but not on extended tours. Right. And so when we do play these songs live, we've had enough of a break from them that they sound a little bit fresh, you know, to us. Yeah. And that's a great, that's a great luxury. Right. That's good. You kind of like, 
you know, mess around with it a little bit also to make it fresh? Or you just... Of course, yeah. I mean, we always... Every time we go out, the songs are changed a little bit. Yeah. Now, like you see, you said the songwriting process and like, you know, coming up with lyrics, like, how do you make like a dance track, like, profound? Like, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, well, these days you don't. I mean, that's right. one of the things that, yeah. that, you know, put us out of the mainstream is that we started as a band and we were always a band and we wrote songs that had lyrics and choruses and verses. Um, and starting around like 92, 91, dance music gave up that whole format. They didn't want songs anymore. If anything, they just wanted one hook that was sampled, uh, usually by a house lady yeah. uh, or something. Um, and so that's kind of where we parted ways with, with you know, electronic dance music as it came to be called. Right. But, you know, electronic dance music in a, in a generic sense. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of our peers had to deal with the same challenge. You know, Depeche Mode decided mm -hmm. to become a quasi rock band during that mm -hmm. period and added all sorts of guitars and cowboy hats to their mm -hmm. to their thing. Yeah. And, you know, whereas Erasure, for instance, just kind of um, toughed it out in the club world. Yeah. You know, they had their built in, you know, gay fan base that that was, you know, big enough and strong enough that they didn't really need to worry about whether they had radio hits or not for a long time. Yeah. And then other bands, you know, that were, you might think of uh, as our peers, European bands or anything like Pet Shop Boys or OMD or bands like that. Mm. They just didn't do anything during that no. period. They just waited it out, you know, yeah. uh, but unfortunately we were sort of young enough that we couldn't really wait it out. We couldn't just disappear for five years and expect to come back mm -hmm you know, and have everybody remember us. Right. Is that um, why you guys kind of like broke up in like 93? Well, in essence, I mean, yeah. we broke up because, well, for a lot of reasons. I mean, we, we hated everybody that was associated with our enterprise. Right. Uh, you know, as happens, you know, yeah. our man, we hated our management. We hated our lawyers. We hated the people at the record company. We, you know, we hated our booking agents. Yeah. Uh, we hated our crew. Uh, we were fighting with each other and, and the, that, and combined with the fact that we were also just incredibly uh, cocky and we just thought, Hey, we can just do this anytime. We don't need you people for this. Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, we learned that that's actually not true, but um, you know, we weren't mature enough and didn't have the kind of guidance uh, to, you know, nobody told us like, you know what you should do? You should just take a one year or a two year break. Right. Um, and then think about it again and see, see what it yeah. looks like down the road. Uh, but also we were at a point in our lives where everybody wanted to start a family and explore different lifestyles. Right. And we were kind of done with right. the New York party club scene kind of thing. Uh, and so, you know, that's what we did. And, and I guess the third thing for us is that we were so shocked and surprised that we were, had gotten as popular as we did, you know, we never expected to be where we were to begin with. So, you know, when you're in a situation that's completely, uh, unexpected, it's always much easier to say, well, okay, now it's done. We're done with that. Yeah, right. You know, because why, how did, how did this even happen anyway? You know, yeah. um, so, you know, 
it was it was probably in in the great scheme of things it was a healthy uh period for everybody right so like who decided to like kind of put the band back together was it you was it Kurt? it was you know i think well as you know kurt put out a record by himself under the right. name society in the late 90s yeah um, so he was still interested in in putting out records whereas i kind of um you know wrote the whole thing off and i was doing just basically instrumental industrial music for a long time and then i formed a new band and i got a new record deal with a different singer on virgin records and that turned into a debacle mm-hmm. um but by that time i was living in la and um you know then the the early to mid 2000s came around and people were starting to ring the phone off the hook saying can you come play right. you know live gigs for us because so i think there was a generational shift and suddenly we were in the you know classic category or something and everyone wanted to see us again uh and that's what kind of put the 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 bee in our bonnet to maybe start recording some new songs Right. It took a while because during that, you know, we did we did a bunch of shows in I think '04 and '05 and '06. But um, Kurt had two little babies at that point, and he was just like, I, you know, I'm okay to do shows once in a while, but um, I'm not that interested in yeah. committing any significant amounts of time. Which is why I then decided to do a record with kind of. A, a number of different sort of associates of the band. Right. Uh, and that record kind of, I think, whetted everybody's appetite to start making new music. Synthesizer was a fun project for everybody. Right. Cassidy was very involved. And Kurt came down and sang a few songs. And then suddenly it was like, oh, yeah, we could do this again. This could kind right. of be fun. And a lot of the traumatic aspects of being in your 20s and, and having to scramble like two cats in a bag you know, about every yeah. minute little detail, right. that, that was long past, you know, yeah. we, everything was kind of relaxed and, and easy. And, and that's the way it stayed since that time, um, which is what makes it so fun for us now. Right. How much did Ben's Reunited like contribute to like kind of getting the ball rolling? I mean, I know you guys didn't reunite on the show, you know, Kurt didn't want to do it, but you know, the three of you, Amanda, you know, James got together. I, so to a certain extent, I mean, it was more the live shows, but you yeah. know, the band's reunited thing was was a fun um, experience for us, just because, you know, they flew Amanda and they flew Jim Cassidy down. I lived in L.A., so I got nothing out of the deal. But, yeah, right. <laughs> except that you know we had a super fun couple of days together, yeah. and um, you know it was uh, again it was just kind of a reminder, like, hey, this was kind of fun when you know when it was good. Right. Um, but it's funny. I remember when we were. You know, we knew Kurt wasn't coming. Everybody knew Kurt was wasn't going to do it, yeah. but they played it off as if it was some big suspenseful moment, like reality TV always does. But yeah. um, the funniest thing is that we're they're interviewing us in one studio in in you know the the lot where we, where they were filming the show, and next door there was this other s- smaller soundstage with a stage and a sound system, and they had like a drum kit and a bass guitar. Mm-hmm. And like guitar there as if somehow we were going to like jump up and 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 do you know our music or something right and it was hilarious they clearly (laughs) did not understand what kind of band we were were, yeah exactly (laughs) how much of yeah how much of amanda's story did you know like i I knew it all i was right there okay 
Yeah. Okay. I mean, the show made it seem like, you know, it was like a big revelation, of course. Well, it was a big revelation to to the fans, but right. it was a big yeah. revelation to us. I mean, yeah. you know, it was a it was a big trauma in the band and it, it you know, I wouldn't say it almost broke us up, but it was a it was a really big problem. Um, and, you know, I, I give a lot of credit to our, our manager at the time who right. was kind of the grown up in the room. He was a couple of years older than us. And, yeah. you know, he he navigated that situation and he helped Amanda a lot during that period. And I think it was how it turned out was great for her because she had always felt a little bit uh of a misfit in the band anyway because she's more of a rocker you know uh and it so it was you know it was a good excuse for her to separate from the band and go do her thing with the furs and Susie and and And, uh, palominos and and all that stuff you know right so yeah so it worked out well which which is great yeah absolutely yeah and you know the thing is we didn't want to it, you know, the, the, her story was for her to, to tell or not to tell. And we weren't going to step on, on those toes because it's, mm-hmm. it's her personal life. And right. Nobody's business uh, other than who she cares to talk to about it. Right. Yeah. How, how often do you keep in contact with her? You know, I, I moved up, I left LA six years ago. So um, not as often as, as I used to, but right. um you know, she she lived in L.A. for a while. She's mm-hmm. one of those people. She always has at least two houses, usually on different continents. OK. Um, and so she would go back and forth between Bath in the U.K. and yeah. L.A. And when she had her place in Venice, I saw her a lot because I lived in Santa Monica uh, and we hung out. And, um, you know, when she would when she was on the road a lot, um, I would go see her. Like what she toured with uh, the Thompson Twins. Right. I went to that show. I went to one of her uh, furs shows, and you know, so we we've kept in touch. That's great. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to make it out to one of her furs shows. I think they're coming to New York in the in the fall. So man, those guys tour a lot. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. So how how'd you uh, meet uh, the South Park guys? Start working with them. Oh, that's a hilarious story. Um, so. I was just in the process of uh, moving out to LA uh, and um, one of my friends, this is in a short period of time when I lived in Minnesota after we had all left New York. Right. One of my Minnesota friends says, oh, uh, remember that kid we went to high school with named so-and-so? I actually can't remember his name, Rick something. Uh, He lives in Denver, Colorado now. And he says there's some, some kids out there that are making a movie and they want to, they, they're like huge fans of you guys. And they want to talk to you about doing the music for them. when I told them that I, I knew you guys yeah. and I went to high school, they right. said, Oh, we need to get a hold of them. So <laughs> right in the middle of me moving to LA, I got, uh, I got a call from Trey Parker, who right. was just a college kid at that point. And he said, yeah, we're making a movie. And um, when I wrote the script, every one of my musical cues just said, this one should sound like information society, you know, yeah. song A, and this one should say, right. And, so do you want to do the music for it? And I was like, yeah, I, I, I'd love to. And I, I met up with them um, uh, at Sundance in Park City. Okay. It was just coincidental that I was able to go there uh, at the same time. And they were, this is when um, their short, their original short animated film, uh, The Spirit of Christmas was 
making yeah. rounds on these bootleg VHS That's tapes. Right. We had one in college. Yep. <laughs> they were just the hottest shit yeah. in the world at that point. But I didn't know who they were. Um, and so we hung out in, uh, at, at, um, at uh, Sundance. And as, as a matter of fact, I needed a ride down, back down to the airport after we had hung out for a couple of days. And so Matt and Trey were, they stopped at Sundance on their way from Colorado, moving to LA. Right. And their car that they were riding in, which was Matt and Trey and Trey's girlfriend, was a like this like like a Chevrolet Geo or something. It was like the worst <laughs> car of all time, and it had right. bald tires. And I have a great uh, memory of going riding down the the mountain from Park City to Salt Lake City yeah. Airport, and basically just sliding sideways the whole time <laughs> in their car, which was stuffed with all their clothes, right. and all their suitcases and stuff because they were moving to L.A. Yeah. Um, anyway, so they were moving to LA. I was moving to LA. Um, I scored, uh, um, orgasmo for them. And it was a, it was a learning experience for me. Um, just a, you know, fun uh, example of always say yes, but, you know, try to learn as quickly as you can, as you go along. Yeah. Uh, and I remember at one point they hadn't, they, you know, while we were making orgasmo, they were negotiating uh, to put South Park on the air. Okay. And, and I was kind of like a, a little older than them. And I, I can't I remember one time going to their office. They had an office in Westwood where they were doing the first pick, yeah. few episodes of South Park. And I remember saying to Trey, like, what are you guys thinking? You're already doing feature films. We're working on a right. feature film. And yeah. here you are spending all your energy on this dumb cartoon on basic cable. Like right. you got your priorities all wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just a, you know, episode 99 and why you should never take business advice from Paul Robb because, right. you know, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And luckily they did not. Right, exactly. And they ended up making a feature film after a stupid little anyway, TV yeah. show, yeah, which is which is kind of funny. And I think, um, you know, a couple of years later, after they were superstars and making a million dollars an episode, um, uh, they called me up and said, hey, you want to do a remix of the theme for our new, for the next season? Right. And I feel like it was just a, a really sweet sort of uh, payback for me scoring their, their original right. indie film. Yeah. Uh, for virtually for nothing right um, so i you know they they were they were very nice right yeah because they basically could have said you know you this star show you know don't even come you know when i'm going to ask you to, to work yeah. on it you know yeah, yeah. It's well, i mean i you know i didn't diss it it wasn't like i was yelling at him but i was right. trying to be paternalistic and give him some some you know business insight or something right exactly yeah right anyway so yeah it was you know i had a lot of great experiences with those guys right that's great I heard you guys almost had a song on the Tim Burton Batman soundtrack. Is that right? Yeah, that's another interesting story. That's another of the many, many near misses of Information Society. So they were right. making the Batman movie, and it was just like the biggest deal in the world. Right. Uh, it's hard to it's hard to imagine that now, but um, this was before Marvel or before yeah. anything like that. Right. And it was a Warner Brothers movie, so so obviously Warner Brothers Records was was deeply involved in the soundtrack. Right. And uh, our uh, A&R man said, yeah, they're looking for a theme song for this new Batman movie. And we had been toying around with the idea of doing a cover mm -hmm. 
you know, thank God we didn't do it in a certain way because it's a sacred right. song and it should never be covered. But yeah. we were talking about doing a cover of Heroes by David Bowie. Oh, yeah. So we <laughs> that happened later on. <laughs> we pitched the idea of doing David of doing Heroes right for as the theme song for Batman, and it got actually got a quite a bit of traction. Okay. And then somebody, one of the higher ups, one of the VPs or something, yeah. said. You know who could really use a career boost right now? Prince. Prince. Yeah. And so that was that was the end of the discussion. Right. Oh, uh, wow. And for, yeah, for our consolation prize, we were invited to play at the um, the uh, cast and crew uh, premiere party, okay. which was fun in its own way, but right. you know, a far cry from um, from having the theme song in the biggest movie of the decade. Right. It's funny. Yeah, because yeah. I think it was the Wallflowers ended up covering Heroes. I think it was for like the Godzilla soundtrack. Like I don't know, but... later, which was a terrible movie. And the song was a good good cover, but I mean, like Batman. I just think there, there yeah. are some there are some songs that shouldn't be covered, and right, you know, like who who nobody should ever cover Hey Jude or yeah, you know, et cetera. And right. I think Heroes is is kind of like that, but for a Batman movie, I would have made an exception. Yeah. Absolutely, and then I mean, like Bat Dance is like it's a great cheesy song, but it's just oh, like it's terrible. It's awful, yeah. right? You know, I mean, he did that. He did the whole soundtrack album in like two hours. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's like, cash your check, thank you, and move on. Yeah. Well, the, the the party itself, the the, the premiere right. party was was a fantastic experience, and it was our you know our one and only real experience with kind of hobnobbing with with Hollywood royalty. Yeah. Uh, and and it was just hilarious and and just awful, right? Uh, uh, and so that I wouldn't I wouldn't trade that experience for anything, right? Yeah. That's you know speaking of cover songs, like which one is like one of your favorites that you guys have done? Oh, there's so many. I mean, you know, on on uh, orders of magnitude, our cover album right. from a couple of years ago, right? Uh, uh, you know, all of those are were obviously our favorites because we wanted to. Do, I mean, you know, everything from one of the songs from Sesame Street. Yep. Uh, you know, I really love our cover of the Snake Finger song, Man in the Dark Sedan. Um, I was a little bit uh, opposed to the idea of doing the Sisters of Mercy cover. Okay. Um, just because it seems so, I mean, they, they have such a distinctive sound and it's, it's kind of like maybe a little yeah. too, but it, that one turned out fantastic too. I was totally wrong. Uh, that's probably yeah. the most popular song on that album actually. Right. Uh, people, you know, even big goth kids are are all very positive about yeah. our cover. And sometimes people who love an original aren't thrilled with when people cover songs too. Yeah. Um, but you know, I like our John Mouse cover on this new record too. Certainly, nothing nothing to do with John Mouse other than the songwriting. But I think uh, he's an example of one of those artists who, in in the later years, has really opened my eyes to what you can do with constraints and, and simplifying, right. you know, your music instead yeah. of, like, you know, uh, spending too long in, in the laboratory and, and baking things over, over producing and overcooking things, you know? Right. You remember where you were the first time you heard, like, it's probably running on the radio. Uh, probably in New York. I mean, it was a, it was a big radio hit in New yeah. York, but it was, more in clubs. I mean, honestly, I can, the first time I can really remember being gobsmacked by hearing my own song 
uh, on the radio wasn't actually running. It was a song called Silent Morning by an artist named Noel oh, yep. that I had uh, uh, co-written and, and co-produced. And um, that song came out about a year after running and it right. was also a, a huge hit. Yeah. And I just remember it was everywhere. When we were first living in New York and doing right. a lot of shows, you know, you would be walking down the sidewalk and people would come down the street with their giant car stereos pumping Silent Morning. Yeah. And that was a that was an awesome, strange and awesome experience. Right. I, I saw both of you guys, I think, on one of those freestyle bills. I think it was Radio City. Oh, yeah. 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 But, you yeah, know, that's... we've done quite a few of those. And aside from the fact that we like we enjoy them because who doesn't like a two song set? You know, <laughs> but, um, the, the, the other great thing about those shows is just to to get to reconnect with some of the people we used to do shows with all the time. Right. And also to see people that we never had a chance to connect with in the first place. Like I never saw uh, uh, Eric B and Rakim back okay. in the day, Yeah. but I got to, to watch Rakim do yeah. a show, right. you know, one of those. And so, you know, that's cool. Yeah. That's awesome. But uh, Oddfellow. He works, he walks on stage. And the first thing he says when he gets on stage is I ain't got a lot of time tonight. So <laughs> It's like, okay, thanks, Rakim. Yeah, <laughs> right. So That's funny. Yeah. I think Vanilla Ice like headlined the one I saw. So it was like Ninja Rap and Ice Ice Baby. <laughs> like oh three times. That was, yeah. that, was a, that was a low point in everyone's right. life. Yeah. It was like, the show at that point, I think it was like four and a half hours. My wife fell asleep. It yeah. was, oh, yeah, it was like, just ended already, you know? <laughs> but uh, yeah, Oddfellow comes out uh, first week of August, right? I think August 6th. That is correct. It comes out in, uh, uh, the digital release comes off okay. uh, August 9th. The CD and vinyl are going to be a little bit uh, after that because we're doing a deal with a, a label called Negative Gain to release okay. the physical product. Right. And uh, especially, you know, as a as a consequence of the pandemic, things are, a little bit backed up in the manufacturing right. side. But yeah, August 9th is the big day for Oddfellows worldwide. Oh, yeah, and, and no cassette releases, right? Because that's not, never coming no, back. No, right? I mean, <laughs> we have the cassette release of, uh, of Hello World just because yeah. one of those cassette boutique labels approached us right. and said, wow. we'll, we'll do a bunch of cassettes for you if you want. Yeah. Who's going to say no to that? Yeah. I have a bunch of them in, in a box somewhere. It's like, how am I? I can't even play those things. You know? I know. Yeah. Just it's an like, artifact. Yeah, of all the things like cassettes and uh, stay, you know, stay in the '80s, please. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, was, I was not sorry to see cassettes gone. No, me neither. But Paul, I appreciate your time today, and good luck with the album. Yeah, thanks very much. It was a pleasure to talk to you. And a special thanks to Paul for joining me today. Check out Oddfellows. It comes out August 9th. It is fantastic. You can follow the band on Twitter at Insoc, I-N-S-O-C. Their website is informationsociety.us. And if you have a guest suggestion, hit me up on Twitter at the first in all one nine, or like the page with my youth on Facebook. Go to iTunes, check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Don't have iTunes? Not a problem. Shows on SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, wherever podcasts are found. A new episode comes every week. Stay safe, everybody. We'll see you then.